Our God and our Father, we come as your children, redeemed by the precious blood of your Son, chosen in times eternal, but called by your grace through Christ in the power of the Spirit to be united to Christ and to be servants of the Most High God. We come, Lord, conscious that we are not the men we desire to be, far less are we the men that you have called and saved us to be. But we come with a united desire to be better than we are, to grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus as we reflect upon your truth, that we might the more faithfully be ministers of the new covenant, that we might hold out Jesus Christ who himself is the gospel. So Lord, be with us, we pray. May your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. Pardon all our sin, we pray. We ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, you should all have uh, a little handout that I sent uh, some weeks ago to Chad. And if you don't, maybe you could put your hand, raise your hand. Um, well, thank you very much for the invitation to be here with you. Um, you'll gather from my accent, I'm not from here. Uh, the little village of Ochdararder that uh, will appear much in what I'm saying uh, over the next couple of hours. Um, I passed within half a mile of it um, a week or so ago, driving from Inverness in the north of Scotland where I lived down to Glasgow where one of my boys lives. And uh, I smiled thinking how significant that little village of Ochderarder was and is and continues to be, not just in the life of the church in Scotland, but in the life actually of the Christian church throughout the world. Whether people have heard of Ochderarder or not, um, in good ways and in bad ways, they have been um, influenced by what happened in Ochderarder. I can say it better than any of you, uh, in the year 1717. What I'd like to do, mainly in this first session, is to perhaps remind you or inform you about the historical circumstances that lay behind um, the controversy over the book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. There's a profound theological statement that really takes us to the heart of the controversy of the marrow of modern divinity. What goes around comes around. Or if you prefer, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. For those of you who know any French, what goes around comes around. The matter of modern divinity controversy was a controversy that actually uh, reflected something that has bedeviled the Church of Jesus Christ from its inception. And by that I mean from the time of the fall of Adam not from the time of the apostles. You can come back to me on that if you like. 
So let me give you historical context, because theology is never done in abstractio. Theology is always done in terms of the historical context of the times in which it's done. There's no theology without psychology. There's no theology without sociology. And we need to keep that in mind. Uh, men weren't sitting in a little ivory tower contemplating the profundities of God and the gospel. The matter of modern divinity was written at a time of war. Civil war was going on in England. But let me take you back to the year 1638. For about 50 years, the Church of Scotland, and there was only one church in Scotland since the Reformation, 1560. For the previous 50 years, the Church of Scotland had been dominated by a king, first of all, James, and then his son, Charles, who wanted to impose Episcopalian, Arminian, uh, theology on the church. The Church of Scotland was reformed at the Reformation. The Scots Confession holds a, a place of honor amongst the great Reformation confessions, the Augsburg Confession of 1530, the Second Helvetic Confession 1566, uh, and the Scots Confession of 1560. The Scottish Church was reformed. Uh, it was Presbyterian it was committed to the doctrines of grace. But for 50 years, James had sought to subjugate the church. He believed in the divine right of kings. Uh, churches could debate, discuss, whatever they pleased, but the king would have the final word. But in 1638, the Scots said, enough is enough. No more, no more. And in that year, the Scots banded together under their nobles. It wasn't a democratic society. Democracy was a bad word. It was tantamount to anarchy. Uh, the Scots nation, under its nobility, banded together and formed the National Covenant. Uh, and this was a pledge that from now on, Scotland would no longer be subject to the diktat of kings, but to the diktat of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Well, of course, that caused a furore. Um, Charles I was in London, and uh, to cut a long story short, there was a brief war uh, Charles the King did not come off well. And at the same time, in England, the English Parliament began to flex its muscles. They didn't like what Charles was seeking to do in England. He was the King of England and Scotland since 1603. And so the English Parliament, they began to make demands of the King. And the English Parliament looked up to Scotland and said, look, can you help us against this tyrannical monarch who wants to 
dominate the life of the church of Jesus Christ. And the Scots, being a little belligerent, said, no problem, we'll help you against the king. And basically, that led to the formation of the Westminster Assembly in 1643, which was convened by the English Parliament. Scotland sent six commissioners, and they had a profound influence on the Westminster Assembly. Samuel Rutherford, probably the main influence, Alexander Henderson, George Gillespie, you may not have heard of George Gillespie, he died very young. He was a brilliant, brilliant young man. Um, they all spoke in Latin, by the way. Uh, English was their native tongue, but the educated spoke in Latin. Um, they had a profound influence on the Westminster Assembly. And it's during that time that a man with the initials E.F., almost certainly Edward Fisher, writes a book, 1645, entitled The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Why did he write the book? Well, he wrote the book because he wanted to chart a middle road, as he would have called it. I wouldn't call it that, and I'll explain that later, but he wanted to chart a middle road, a better road, a more biblical road between legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. And Edward Fisher decided he would write this book. He was a barber and a surgeon. Barbers were often surgeons in those days. He was a barber, a surgeon, and a bookseller. He had no theological training, but he had read widely. And if you've read the Marrow, hopefully you have, you'll know that he's quoting from here, there, and everywhere, Luther, Calvin, and many of the Westminster divines. Indeed, indeed, this is significant. Between 1645 and the second edition in 1646, Fisher includes a lot more quotes from the divines in the Westminster Assembly. Why did he do that? Well, probably because Edward Fisher was a hypothetical universalist. Not a universalist. Do you understand what I mean? If I say anything, you think, I'm not sure about that. Just put your hand up. That's fine. He was a hypothetical universalist. But he wanted his book to be passed by the censors of the Westminster Assembly. Books would be censored. They'd be looked at. Is this orthodox? Is this worthy? Is this heterodox? And so, judiciously, he begins to import a number of quotations from significant divines, orthodox, reformed, mainly Presbyterian divines. Edward Fisher was a Presbyterian. And the book was passed by the censors as being worthy. 
Now, here's the issue, and I'll mention this because it will come up later. Here's one of the issues. When Thomas Boston read The Marrow of Modern Divinity, Boston was a down-the-line federal Westminster Calvinist. He was untouched, untinctured by hypothetical universalism. He would have excoriated hypothetical universalism. Boston read the marrow within his own lens. You need to keep that in mind. I think the marrow, in the marrow there are traces, evidences of hypothetical universalism, not least in terms of how the gospel is to be preached. But Boston didn't see it that way. He interpreted it within his own reformed Westminster grid. So the book's published 1645, and it's not a bestseller. Uh, it falls into practical desuetude. Uh, nobody knows about it. It's, it's almost never quoted. In the year 1701, Thomas Boston this is subjective, probably, in my judgment, the greatest minister raised up by God in Scotland since the Reformation. Thomas Boston is not only a genius of the First Order, Jonathan Edwards called him one of the great divines of the church. Jonathan Edwards read Boston. Indeed, Rabbi Duncan, a mid-19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister who was called Rabbi because of his tremendous facility with Hebrew, said he wanted all his students to go to Jonathan Edwards to discover what true divinity is, and then to go to Thomas Boston to find how to get it. Boston had been a minister for three or four years, and he struggled. He struggled with, how do I preach the gospel? You might be thinking, well, that's a no-brainer. You just preach the gospel. But here's why Boston struggled. 1638, the National Covenant. Scots free themselves of the king. But in 1660, England and Scotland basically welcome the king back. Not the king who was executed in 1649, but a new king, his son, Charles II. Charles promised the Scots the earth, I'll restore Presbyterianism. I'll restore the Westminster Confession to pride of place in the life of the Scottish church. And the Scots stupidly, foolishly, believed the king. Samuel Rutherford didn't. He said, he's a bad man. He's a bad man. Don't believe anything he says. Charles comes to the throne. What does he do? He passes an act of uniformity. 2,000 Puritan ministers are ejected from the Church of England because they won't conform to the prayer book. 300 Quasi-Puritan, they're really covenanting ministers, but we'll call them Puritans. 
in Scotland are kicked out of the church because they won't conform to the prayer book. Scotland is now again Episcopalian. For the next 30 years, the king ruled the roost, by and large. And then he dies. He dies in 1685. And he has a son, James VII, James II of the United Kingdom, James VII of Scotland. He's a feat. He's weak. And so both England and Scotland take the opportunity to rise in rebellion. And they defeat James. And William of Orange and his wife are invited from Holland to come and take the throne. William's a Protestant. And you have the glorious revolution, 1688. 1690, uh, Parliament um, reimposes the Westminster Confession of Faith into the life of the church. Presbyterianism is um, uh, validated once again. So you've got a Reformed church, a Reformed confession of faith. Isn't that great? No, it's not. Because all the ministers who had conformed in the previous 30 years subscribed the confession of faith. But the greater majority of them were Episcopalians and Arminians at best, and there were a few Arians thrown into the mix. But they, for whatever reasons, usually for self-interest and self-gain, they subscribed the Westminster Standards. That's why you should never judge a church by its written confession of faith. You would be an idiot. You would be an idiot to judge a church by what it has down written in its bylaws, in its confession of faith. You need to go to the church and say, does it practice that? Does it live up to that? How does it exercise godly discipline? The mere fact that people have orthodox confessions as their standards does not mean they're orthodox. Just as a little bypath, in 1729, maybe all of you know this, the Presbyterians in America got together. It's about time, some of them said, we had a written confession of faith. The first presbytery was founded in 1706, you know, Francis Macamay. Philadelphia. 1729, they all get together, and the Scots, to the fore, said, we need to embrace the Westminster standards. Others said, mm, not we don't believe in it, but what have confessions of faith actually done for the Church of Jesus Christ throughout the past 1,700 years? We have the Apostles' Creed the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. We have the canons of uh, the Council of Chalcedon. And so you go on, and we have the Augsburg Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession, the Scots Confession, the Westminster Confession. And they're looking at Scotland, and they're seeing, hmm, they've got a confession of faith, but moderatism and Episcopalianism and Arminianism is rife. So Jonathan Dickinson, 
who was a down-the-line Westminster jot and tittle Presbyterian, he said, confessions do nothing to keep the garden of the Lord pure. So they had this animated discussion over some days, and Dickinson came round to realizing that while confessions did not guarantee the purity and orthodoxy of the church, they were a great help in doing so. In fact, the Westminster Confession calls itself a help. And they realized that, yes, we need confessions of faith, and in addition to confessions of faith, we need to thoroughly examine men. The mere fact that folk can subscribe a confession doesn't tell you anything about their theology or their experiential divinity. So this Church of Scotland has Presbyterianism reestablished, Westminster Confession of Faith's at the heart of it, but the church is like a Noah's Ark. There are some good men, but there's a lot of iffy men. And so Boston has come into the ministry at this time, at the end of the 17th century. And you think, how, how do I preach the gospel? Do I preach the law first and bring people into a deep sense of unworthiness and condemnation and then hold out Jesus Christ? He was really in a funk. And then he visited one of his parishioners. Boston ministered in a small village uh, about 40 miles south of Edinburgh, the southeast of Scotland. This parishioner had been a soldier in the Cromwellian army in the Civil War. And as Boston talked with him, he noticed two books. I don't know if they were the only two books. Books were rare, but he saw two books on a bookshelf. One of them was by an antinomian, Tobias Crisp. And Boston says, I had no liking for antinomianism. But then he saw this other book, The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Said, well, that sounds interesting. Marrow, the richness, the fatness of modern divinity. Boston borrows the book, takes it home, and his whole world is turned upside down for good. He begins to understand what it means to preach the gospel. It means to preach Jesus Christ, because you cannot separate the benefits of Christ from the person of Christ, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. Christ is the gospel. You preach Jesus Christ. You hold out Jesus Christ. You don't tell people, um, until you're an awakened sinner, Christ is not for you. You tell everyone, everywhere, Christ is for you. Come to him, whoever you are. And people immediately, says Boston in his memoirs. How many of you have read Boston's memoirs? Oh, dear. One, two. It's one of the great, great reads. The Banner of Truth on the board, so I'm publicizing a book. Um, it's a fabulous read. Take maybe a bit of time to get into it, but I tell my students, if you don't read Boston, memoirs, I won't let you graduate. I, I, don't, I don't have that. Well, actually, I do have that power now in the seminary, but um, I, I, I didn't have it then. Boston writes in his memoirs, my congregation immediately discerned. Now, I want you to notice this one word, because it's going to be a, 
a shadow over all that I say now. They noticed a certain tincture in my preaching. You know what a tincture is? You, you get a big basin of water, you put in a tincture, and immediately, a little drop, immediately it colors everything. They immediately realized there was something new, something heavenly, something affectional that had been missing in Boston's preaching. 1701-1702. That's the last we hear about the marrow of modern divinity until the year 1717. In the year 1717, the presbytery of Ochderarder, I should almost get you to say Ochderarder, the presbytery of Ochderarder, which is about 45 miles northwest of Edinburgh, a little bit south of Perth, central Scotland, north central Scotland. The presbytery of Ochderarder meet, and they did something they should never have done. They asked a young man who was being questioned for ordination a question that the General Assembly had not sanctioned. Now, if the General Assembly had not sanctioned it, they shouldn't have done it. So why did they ask this question? I'll give you the question in a minute. You probably know it. The question, they asked the question because they were deeply concerned that a spirit of legalism was increasingly manifesting itself in the life of the Reformed Church in Scotland. So what was the question they asked this young man, who's called William Craig? Do you believe it is not sound or right? Now, follow the language. Do you believe it is not sound or right to say you must repent of your sins before you come to Jesus Christ. Now, I'll say it again, because it's a bit convoluted. And Boston himself says later, it's badly worded, but the truth of it, the truth of it, I cherished. Do you believe it is neither right nor sound to teach that you must repent of your sin? before you come to Jesus Christ. So what were the presbytery asking this young man? They were asking him, are you a preparationist? Do you think that you must in some way prepare yourself before the gospel comes to you? Do you think that you must tell people you must be an awakened sinner, a repentant sinner, before Christ can be offered to you? Now, it was a badly worded question. It was an illegitimate question, actually. But it was a very good question. Because that presbytery clearly was thinking, things are not going well in the church. Legalism is penetrating into the vitals of the church. Well, the young man at first says, uh, yes, I don't think that's sound or right. And then he, he goes away and says, I don't, oh, 
I don't think that's right. So the presbytery refused to ordain him. He appeals to the General Assembly. And the, this is called the Ochterarder Creed. Do you think it is neither right nor sound uh, to insist that people must repent before Christ can be offered to them? The General Assembly say, this is detestable, unsound doctrine. And now begins the controversy over the marrow of modern divinity. Thomas Boston is in the assembly. And he says, poor I kept my mouth shut while the blessed gospel of my Savior Jesus Christ was being trampled into the dust. I find that comforting. Poor I. He, he was a shy man, a retiring man. He was one of the most brilliant Hebraists in the whole of Europe. In this little tiny village uh, of a couple of hundred people south of Edinburgh. Uh, he was a great divine. Poor I kept silent. But what he did was he turned to his friend John Drummond, who was beside him in the assembly. And he said, brother, I have a book that you might find helpful in this matter. He gives the book to John Drummond. He goes away and finds a copy for himself. He in turn tells a man with the name James Hogg, H-O-G, about the marrow of modern divinity. Hogg reads it and is overwhelmed by it. He has it printed. Well, in 1720, the General Assembly condemn, condemn the teaching of the marrow of modern divinity, again as unsound, unholy, detestable doctrine. Why? Because they believed that the book was teaching antinomianism. So remember the Ochterarder Creed. The presbytery in Ochterarder was really saying, until you come to Christ, you can't really repent of your sins. Repentance unto life is a gift of God's grace that he gives us in union with Christ. To talk about true repentance and then come to Christ means that you separate the blessings of Christ from the person of Christ and you become a preparationist. You say that you've got something in yourself that you can do before God gives you his saving gospel. Well, the General Assembly um, roundly condemned the marrow. The vast majority of them had never read the marrow. The vast, vast majority. But they'd heard excerpts from the marrow, and I'll come to that. They'd heard excerpts, and what they heard they didn't like. And I understand why they didn't like it. I don't like this. The vast majority hadn't read it. They've no access to it. Hardly any evangelicals voted in favor of the marrow of modern divinity. Out of about 650 ministers in the Church of Scotland at that time, only 12 
only 12 signed a protest. It was called a representation. Uh, Thomas Boston, Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine, uh, John Drummond, James Hogg of Carnock, and seven others, they, they, they sign a protest effect, effectively saying that the Assembly's decision to ban, they actually banned the reading of the marrow of modern divinity and told ministers you must not commend it or read it. Now, that law has never been rescinded in the Church of Scotland, amazingly. So for 20 years as a Church of Scotland minister, I was in defiance of the General Assembly. But that's okay. Um, I wasn't in defiance of God. So they made a representation, a protest, and the General Assembly came down hard on them. And by 135 votes to five, they reaffirmed that the doctrine of the marrow of modern divinity was detestable and antinomian. And we'll come to why that is maybe in the next session. Well, Boston is disconsolate. So what he decides to do is to get round the edict of the assembly regarding the marrow by not promoting the marrow, but by writing a book with notes on the marrow. And that's what you have here, a Christian Focus publication. You've got Boston's notes. Now, Boston's notes are far better than the marrow. Um, I read yesterday a, a minister saying Boston's notes are ponderous. Well, he needs a radical metanoia, does that man? Uh, Boston's never ponderous. He's profound, but he isn't ponderous. So in 1726, Boston um, writes notes on the matter of modern divinity, seeking to vindicate it from the charges that it taught a universal atonement, that it taught antinomianism, I'm free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Uh, he sought to show that in the marrow, the true gospel of Jesus Christ was being set forth. That the marrow was confronting preparationism. And that the marrow, above all, and this to me is the great issue of the marrow, it's not law and gospel, though that's there and we'll talk about that. The great issue of the marrow is this. Who is the God of the gospel? Who is the God of the gospel? Everything comes back to this in theology. Every question, every practical matter that you deal with pastorally comes back to this, ultimately. Who is God? Who is God? The Marrow controversy effectively ends then. In the next session, we're, we're going to look more closely at what the Marrow actually taught. But here's, a, here's an issue that you should keep in mind. When the General Assembly was condemning the Ochterarder Creed, 
and then condemned the marrow of modern divinity and was seeking to present itself as a guardian of gospel orthodoxy, because that's what Principle Haddo, H-A-D-D-O-W, not Haddo, but Haddo, Principle of the Divinity College at St. Andrews University in Scotland. They presented themselves as the guardians of Reformed orthodoxy. At the same time, that they were condemning the Ardor Creed and condemning the marrow of modern divinity, they gave a slap over the wrist to a professor who at best was Arminian and at worst was an Arian. John Simpson of the Divinity College in Glasgow. Uh, Simpson had been uh, brought before the General Assembly. Some people had protested that his teaching, he was teaching students Arminianism. No, Arminianism then was a little different from what it is today. We don't need to go into that. Arminianism was a kind of multi-headed hydra. And it was seen to be um, a truth that was undermining the very fabric of biblical religion, that God was sovereign in creation and redemption. Now, Simpson ends up an Arian denies the deity of Christ. So when he's brought before the assembly, you know, he, he does what heretics almost, all, almost always, if you know church history, almost always they do this, have been misunderstood. Um, you don't understand my language. Uh, I once heard N.T. Wright lecture at Cambridge. He is probably one of the most brilliant lecturers. Have you ever heard N.T. Wright lecture, James? Absolutely tremendous. Um, but if, if you speak to Tom, he'll say to you, you just don't get it. If you really got me, you would agree with me. You, your problem is you, you just don't, and you say, well, actually, Tom, I think I do get it. I just don't agree with it. And he'll say, no, it's, it's because, Ian, you don't really get it. I was once invited to Durham when he was bishop there to give a paper on the new perspective on Paul and He'd been invited, and I thought, oh dear, because he's a brilliant fellow. Oh, pygmy beside him. And I thought, right, I'll prepare two papers. One if he's there, be a bit more academic, and hopefully one that he's not there. And then he sent an apology, and I thought, well, that's, that's fine. Um, so John Simpson does what heretics usually do. You really don't understand me. Um, and so the, the, the General Assembly said, well, Professor Simpson, be a bit more circumspect in your language. Oh, I'll, I'll do that gladly. Yeah, no problem. So the assembly give a, a, a limp slap on the wrist to a man who is an Arminian, whose teaching is violently undermining the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And they're coming down like a sledgehammer on the marrow of modern divinity. That's why I, I said this earlier, but it's worth repeating. The Church of Scotland today still has the Westminster Confession of Faith as its subordinate standard of faith. And it practices, you can deny the Holy Trinity and be a minister in the Church of Scotland. You can deny substitutionary penal atonement. 
uh, bodily resurrection, Christ's virginal conception, his return. Uh, you, you can deny anything and everything. You can be a professed atheist. So you don't judge church. Yeah, yeah, you think that. It's, is he exaggerating? No, I ain't exaggerating. I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. So that's the context. 1733, um, Boston dies in 1732. 1733 is the first secession from the Church of Scotland. And really, it's a small band of men led by Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine. They say, enough is enough. The gospel is being lost. We can no longer remain in a church that tramples publicly uh, on the gospel. Often, not often, but sometimes I'm asked, do you think Boston would have left with them in 1733? I actually don't think he would have left. But that's a personal judgment. So, what did the marrow of modern divinity actually teach? John Trapp, a later Puritan, said Edward Fisher was a sly antinomian. Edward Fisher, who wrote The Marrow, and I think it's a, it's a really good read uh, with some superb passages. I've got my reservations about it. Um, Edward Fisher was influenced by John Preston, uh, Breastplate of Righteousness, uh, great work. Preston was a hypothetical universalist. There were six hypothetical universalists in the Westminster Assembly, six that we know of, uh, the main one being Davenant. Um, others, Edmund Calmey, uh, very, very fine man. Um, I think it's undeniable that Edward Fisher is a hypothetical universalist. But he keeps his profile very low. And that's why when people read the marrow of modern divinity for the first time, and they don't know the historical context, I think it's understandable that they wonder, how on earth could Thomas Boston be so fulsome in his praise of the marrow? Now, Boston doesn't say he agrees with everything in the marrow. He says there are, there's infelicitous language, uh, there are some things I don't think are right, but by and large, the, the, the thesis that Edward Fisher is promoting, Boston embraces. And what is that thesis? And with that, we'll give him a break. The thesis is this. Jesus Christ is the gospel. I think Grasping that is one of the most profound things that could ever happen to you as a Christian minister, as a Christian. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And Jesus Christ is God's, this is the language of the marrow, God's deed of gift and grant to the world. 
I think it's not good language, but that's the language of the matter. Jesus Christ is God's deed and gift and grant to the world. I think Edward Fisher meant by that that Jesus Christ came into the world to save everyone. And he died not just sufficiently to save everyone, but he died to save everyone so that whoever believes in him can receive that salvation. It's a hypothetical universalism. Boston did not understand it like that. He understood the language. And perhaps, maybe this is me being a little unfair on Thomas Boston. And, and he is one of the great, the great, great giants of the Christian era, I think, actually. Not just of the Scottish church. Boston did not have access to the volumes of the mid-17th century. See what, what he had in his library. It was relatively limited. You know, he, he read what he could, but he wasn't au fait with the currents going around in the 1640s. In his first edition, he quotes Tobias Crisp, a noted antinomian, and another person. But in the second edition, the next year, he removes those quotes and brings in a few more orthodox quotes from some of the, the foremost Westminster divines. But the great thesis at the heart of the marrow is that we are to offer Christ to everyone, everywhere, whoever they are, in whichever condition they find themselves. We must never hesitate to preach Christ because... If we say to people, you can prepare yourself to receive Christ by repenting, well, let me, you, you can finish the sentence. God holds out Jesus Christ, and it's in union with Christ that we receive the grace of repentance. Calvin's quite strong on this, faith precedes repentance. I, I'm not sure that's good language. I, I think myself, faith is a penitent faith, and penitence is a believing penitence. I think there are two sides or two realities. That are, that I think Dabney calls them Siamese twins. But Boston's passion is set against the context of the church in Scotland, where people were hearing a kind of um, hyper-Calvinism, if you're not repenting, you're not one of the elect. And if you're not one of the elect, you can't have Christ. And Boston's saying, no, 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 no. The gospel is clear. Come, 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 come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And Boston is saying, that's not a condition for coming. That's saying that whoever you are, in whatever condition you find yourself, you can come. So that's giving you the historical background. The great issues that arise out of it are, what is the relationship of law to gospel? How do we preach the gospel? 
How do we pastor the people of God? And my last word in this brief session would be this, that at the bottom of all of that, at the bottom of all of that is, who is God? Who is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Who is God? Now, if you ask Thomas Boston that, he would begin, as, as he does, God is Trinity, one in his threeness, three in his oneness. God is simple. He's not an amalgam of parts and passions. And as the triune, simple God, he sent his son to be the savior of the world. And that for Boston is the great issue that lies at the heart.